This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Today is Tuesday, July 14th, 2020. On this day in 1789, a mob of angry French citizens and soldiers stormed a garrison-turned-political prison, the Bastille. The mob murdered, looted, and destroyed the building. But they did it all in the name of democracy. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're covering the storming of the Bastille, an event historians peg as the flashpoint of the first French Revolution. Men were murdered, property was looted, but today Bastille Day is an annual celebration. It begs the question, are crimes committed in the name of revolution still crimes? For an answer, let's go back to the Bastille in Paris around noon on July 14, 1789. They knew what was coming. The Bastille's military governor, the Marquis de Lunay, and Swiss Lieutenant Louis de Flou had spent the prior day hiding 20,000 pounds of gunpowder in the fortress's vaults. But they couldn't keep it from the French people forever. Three days earlier, King Louis XVI dismissed finance minister and folk hero Jacques Necker, provoking the French populace to riot. They'd lost what felt like their only voice in the government and feared the king would attack them next with guns or with taxes. So the commoners armed up for battle. Citizens raided military stores, stealing any guns or weaponry they could. And now the bourgeois were bringing those stolen guns to the Bastille. Lieutenant Duflou, head of the Swiss regiment called in as reinforcements, remained calm as the first group of commoners approached the fortress. The Marquis Dulunay, on the other hand, struggled to cool his nerves. The French nobleman had purchased his job as governor of the Bastille. It was his father's role before him, a point of pride. He had much more invested here. They'd spent the morning negotiating with the citizen representatives and eventually agreed to remove the cannons from the fortress's battlements. The cannons were merely ceremonial, so it hadn't much bothered the Marquis. It seemed the matter would soon be settled. But as negotiations continued, the crowd grew restless. Another delegation led by Athis de Corny requested a peace negotiation. The Marquis and the General agreed to speak with him. According to Duflou, de Corny's request was less than peaceful. He asked them to disarm the Bastille so that if, hypothetically, a mob of French commoners invaded to steal gunpowder, they could get in and out unharmed. Of course, the Marquis refused. 
And of course, the French populace stormed the Bastille. Not that it was that simple. Originally built in the 1300s, the Bastille was designed for a siege, and as of 1789, the only entrance led to a series of drawbridges and courtyards, so any enemy soldiers who successfully broke through one door would quickly be stopped by another. Conveniently, the first of these drawbridges was already open. After marching over it, the invading citizens demolished the chains, guaranteeing entry. The rioters had to axe down the second drawbridge, but met no resistance there either. At the third drawbridge, they encountered the Marquis de Lunay. He stood atop the battlements, a good 80 feet above the rioters. The Marquis asked what the citizens could possibly be doing in his fortress. They yelled back, requesting he lower the remaining drawbridges. The Marquis politely told them that they could leave or be shot. Calling his bluff, the citizens began hacking at the wooden drawbridge, and the Marquis ordered his men to shoot. The towers of the Bastille glowed with smoke and gunfire. Many of the invading citizens fell. Still, others continued trying to break through the third drawbridge. Despite fewer numbers, the French and Swiss forces had the higher ground and therefore the advantage. Before long, the civilian mob retreated. The Marquis probably considered himself successful as he watched bloody, battered citizens drag themselves and their dead from the Bastille. But at 3 p.m., nearly 1,000 more armed citizens stormed the Bastille. However, this was a new crowd. The gunshots and screaming had attracted the attention of about 300 French soldiers, or Gardou Francaise. The fighting inspired the soldiers to go rogue, joining around 600 citizens in a vicious attack. Though the citizens weren't trained like the soldiers, they were prepared with two stolen cannons. One was a gorgeous silver artillery, a gift from the King of Siam to Louis XIV. Fittingly, the people turned this sign of royal excess against their oppressors. As the rebels aimed the silver cannon at the third drawbridge, the Marquis knew it was time to surrender. He waved his white handkerchief through a hole in the drawbridge, while Lieutenant Duflu held out a hastily scribbled letter of proposed terms. But the crowd was already electrified. Instead of brokering peace, they took hold of a young woman trying to hide from the riot. Somehow, someone determined that she was the Marquis de Lunay's daughter. They forced her onto a mattress in the courtyard and set it ablaze. As fate would have it, the woman was not the Marquis's daughter. She was the child of a low-ranking official who was shot in an attempt to save her. Seeing one of their own fall, the defenders of the Bastille fired their cannon into the crowd. In the chaos, a sympathetic revolutionary rescued the poor young woman and spirited her away. Watching this all from above, four Swiss guards defied their orders. They'd fight no more. The men let down the drawbridge. Meanwhile, the Marquis raced underground toward the gunpowder vault. 
he'd blow himself up before surrendering. Coming up, the destruction of the Bastille. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By 5.30 p.m. on July 14, 1789, Paris's Bastille was under the command of the people, specifically a mob of angry commoners and rogue soldiers. They'd broken in to loot the fortress for its gunpowder supply, but the Bastille's governor, the Marquis de Lunay, planned to destroy the gunpowder before the looters could get their hands on it. He raced to the vault where he'd hidden the supply the day prior. As the Marquis brought his torch ever closer to 20,000 tons of gunpowder, he was tackled. Two of his own men dragged him away from the stash as the invading populace eagerly took the prize their fellow citizens had died for, gunpowder, and with it, the first step toward freedom from tyranny. By the end of the day, de Lunay's head was on a spike, paraded through the streets of Paris. Lieutenant de Flew, meanwhile, switched sides, declaring the Swiss would support the French populace. However, many of his men had already escaped Paris by posing as prisoners freed from the Bastille, and de Flew soon joined them, never to fight in the French Revolution again. In Versailles, Queen Marie Antoinette urged her husband to take action against the Parisian rioters, but King Louis XVI preferred to ignore it. This was the last day he'd have that luxury. By the next morning, July 15th, the king had been persuaded to act and went to meet the rioters for a negotiation. That same day, an industrious businessman, Pierre-Francois Palois, hired a team of 800 men to demolish the Bastille. But Palois wasn't only out to destroy it, he scrapped the castle for souvenirs, using pieces of the former prison to turn a tidy profit. By the anniversary of the storming, July 14, 1790, the French had abolished feudalism, imprisoned their former king, and written a new constitution, one of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Though none of this would last, the storming of the Bastille set the precedent for revolution in Paris. Uprisings in 1830, 1848, 1871, 1941, and 1968 used the storming of the Bastille as a symbol, a call to arms, and a sign of French national pride. More than one of these revolutions are memorialized at the former site of the Bastille. It's now a public plaza, a venue for all citizens of Paris to gather together. One of the biggest annual gatherings occurs July 14th. The anniversary of the storming of the Bastille is now France's National Day, celebrated with a military parade, fireworks, and other displays of patriotism. 
Lobbying for the adoption of this holiday in 1880, French Senate Chairman Henri Martin said, It was the consecration of the unity of France. If some of you might have scruples against the first 14th of July, they certainly hold none against the second. Whatever difference which might part us, something hovers over them. It is the great images of national unity, which we all desire, for which we would all stand willing to die if necessary. The storming of the Bastille may have started as a mission to steal gunpowder, but the event crystallized into an ideology. The people of France will always seek a better tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. If you'd like to hear more about the French Revolution of 1789, check out the episode of ParCast original Falls from Grace on Marie Antoinette. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 